with us. We are making our way through a series on the book of Acts. The reason why we take books of the Bible and preach them verse by verse is we want the Word of God to set the agenda. And we have a confidence that God speaks through His Word. And so that, and let me pray here and then we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we do want to pray this morning that you would indeed speak through your Word. We are confident that every time we open up this book, that you speak. That your Word does not return empty but accomplishes all that you desire and achieves the purpose for which you sent it. And so in this moment, we have a great expectation that as we turn to your word, your voice will be heard loudly and clearly. Father, I pray that there is nothing that I would say today that would detract from what your word teaches. And I pray that your voice would ring loudly and clearly, that we would hear your voice in these words in Acts 6, verses 1 to 7. So Lord God, Lord God please give us your mercy this morning, so that we would have ears to hear your voice through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Over the years, I've heard a lot of stories about youth pastors and youth ministry leaders doing some really dumb things. And I'll be the first to admit that in my years as a youth pastor, I have my own share of bad ideas too. But there are bad ideas, and then there are really bad ideas. Case in point, I read an article this week that talked about some of the worst ideas ever employed by youth pastors, and there were some doozies. But one stuck out to me more than the rest. Apparently, a youth pastor in some unmentioned location, a friend of the author, decided that it would be a good idea to set up a slip and slide down the center aisle of the church sanctuary. But this wasn't just your typical slip and slide, mind you. Instead of using water, this particular youth pastor decided instead to use chocolate syrup as the substance to make the slip and slide go. But as if that wasn't bad enough, the youth pastor decided to culminate the night by taking off his shirt, bad idea, and sliding down the slide himself, another bad idea, and predictably it did not end well. He went down the slide, proceeded to zoom past the end of the slide, and crashed into the church altar. Like I said, there are bad ideas, and there are just really bad ideas. And assuming that story is true and not just made up by the author, I have only one question in response, Why? Why would you think that setting up a chocolate syrup slip inside in the church sanctuary is a good idea? And more importantly, why would you think that's helpful in advancing the cause of the gospel? Now hear me, I certainly understand the value of creating a fun atmosphere in the youth group. I think that's good, important. I think Seth does a good job of that here. I get the impulse to be creative and think of new ideas that might draw people in, but some things cross a line and end up being more of a distraction to the gospel than an actual help. And I think it's fair to say that setting up a chocolate slip inside in the church sanctuary is probably one of those things. But to be fair to our anonymous youth pastor friend, he's not alone in trying to outthink himself as it relates to ministry strategy. There are plenty of other youth ministers that have resorted to similar gimmicks over the years. In fact, some of, the, some of those gimmicks have been far more dangerous and far more irresponsible. Furthermore, the impulse to rush to gimmicks in ministry is not just a youth ministry thing. Whether it's the church that decides to put up overly clever signs outside their church building, or the pastor that constantly feels a need to preach edgy and contemporary sermon series, there seems to be a constant temptation in ministry to prioritize relevancy over biblical faithfulness. Now to be clear, and let me be clear on this, I think there's a place for creativity in the church. I think games and youth groups, good idea. I think there's wisdom in asking how can we better reach lost people. But what I'm driving at is this. If gimmicks and fads and edginess become our primary ministry strategy, something has gone seriously wrong. As one of my mentors used to say, and as I've seen written plenty of places since then, what you win people with is what you win them to. 
So if you win them with gimmicks and fads and chocolate slip-insides, what they want are more gimmicks, more fads, and more chocolate slip-insides. And it probably goes without saying, but let's say it anyway. That's not the goal of the church. The goal of the church is not to get people through the doors, whatever means possible. The goal of the church is to worship God and to help people see the surpassing beauty of Jesus Christ. And if that's the goal, then I think there are better strategies than crazy games and weird gimmicks. Namely, preach the gospel, love one another, and then pray that God does an amazing work. And actually, I think we see that strategy being employed by the church in Acts 6. At the beginning of Acts 6, the early church hits a hiccup. They run into a bit of a problem. There's an issue that arises within the church. But as the church addresses that issue, I think we learn a lot about the early church's perspective on ministry, and we learn a lot about their strategy. And what we learn is that their strategy is beautifully simplistic. Preach the word, love each other, and then pray. And as we see the early church employ that strategy in Acts chapter 6, my goal this morning, my hope for us, is that we would be motivated to carry out the same strategy at this church. So that said, let's get to it. Acts 6, 1 to 7. If you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand here out of reverence for reading of God's word. The words will be on the screen here. You can follow along that way. You can listen as I read, or if you have your own Bibles, you can follow along that way as well. Just seven verses this morning, Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says this, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So the issue at hand here in Acts 6 is that the church is growing, but apparently as the church is growing, certain things, or in this case, certain people are falling through the cracks. In particular, as we're told in verse 1, there was a group of Hellenists. Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews who, in this case, had been converted to Christianity. These Hellenists were complaining that their widows, the Hellenist widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution of resources. Now, both the Old and New Testament talk regularly about the importance of caring for orphans and widows and those who have been pushed to the side. And apparently, the early church took this command seriously about caring for widows. As verse 1 informs us, there is a daily distribution, probably of food, maybe clothing, to the widows. But for some reason, the Hellenist widows, again, the Greek-speaking Jewish believers, were being overlooked in this distribution. Now, we're not sure why this is happening. It's possible, I suppose, that they are being intentionally overlooked by the Hebrew believers because of the cultural differences. Because they were Hebrew and they were Hellenist, they were just overlooking them on purpose. Or it's possible there was some logistical hurdle that made it more difficult to minister to the Hellenist widows. Maybe they lived further away. Or it's possible that the church was just growing so fast that unintentionally people were slipping through the cracks. Now, for my part, I don't think there is an obvious reason to suspect here intentionally malicious behavior on behalf of the church. If the overlooking was intentional and based on ethnicity, you would think that would have come up in the narrative. So I tend to rule out that possible explanation. But the truth is, we just don't know what's happening here. We don't know why they were being neglected. All we know is that they were being neglected. 
And so the apostles spring into action. Verse 2, the apostles summon the full number of the disciples and inform the group they don't think it would be right for them, the apostles, to give up preaching the word in order to serve tables. So the apostles' recommendation to the group in verses 3 and 4 is to pick out seven men of good reputation, men who are filled with the Spirit, men who are filled with wisdom, and appoint them, the seven, to take care of all the widows. As the apostles emphasize in verse 4, this will free up the apostles to continue devoting themselves to the word and prayer. And so this sounds good to the rest of the group. In fact, verse 5 informs us that this pleased the whole gathering. And so they appoint seven men to care for the widows. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, who will play a very prominent role here shortly in the book of Acts. Philip, who will also play a somewhat prominent role in the book of Acts. And then the rest of the men who we know nothing else about. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a Jewish proselyte from Antioch. Interestingly, all of the names mentioned in verse 5 are Greek names. It's possible then, specifically, they were appointed as Greek-speaking men, potentially, to minister to the Greek-speaking widows. But that said, some of the names were common amongst Jewish people at the time also, so we don't know that either. What we do know is that these seven were appointed for the task. And then in verse 6, we read that the seven were set before the apostles. The apostles laid hands on them and prayed for them. So that's the basic setup of our passage today. These seven are commissioned for ministry. There's a problem in the church that's being neglected, and so the apostles appoint these seven to make sure that the ministry is taken care of. The church is growing quickly, and this problem needed to be addressed. In light of the summary statement of verse 7, I think we can say that it was addressed effectively. In verse 7, we're told that the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. We're even told that many of the priests who would have been most opposed to the gospel message are also now being obedient to the faith. So even in the midst of this hiccup of the Hellenist widows, God is still at work. In fact, you get the sense from the passage that the way in which the apostles addressed the hiccup was actually part of the way in which he was advancing the gospel message. And it's the way in which they addressed this problem that I want us to think about in the rest of our time together this morning. Because I think the apostles' problem-solving strategy here in Acts 6 gives us tremendous insight into the ministry strategy of the early church. And again, as I alluded to earlier, I think that strategy can serve as a model for us in terms of how we should approach ministry. More specifically, I think there are three things that we see here, three prongs, if you will, of the early church's strategy that would be wise for us to employ. First, they preached the word, they cared for each other. Secondly, and third, they prayed. I think it's worthwhile thinking about all three of those prongs because I think all three of them would be wise for us to adopt. So I want you to notice first in this passage, they prioritized the preaching of the word. This is prong number one in the early church's ministry strategy. They prioritized the preaching of the word. Now, you certainly don't get the impression in this passage that the apostles were dismissive of the complaint by the Hellenists. As evidenced by their prompt response, and perhaps more importantly, as evidenced by the types of men that they recommended appointing, they clearly took this complaint very seriously. But it's also equally obvious that they did not think it was right to give up preaching the word in order to serve tables. Twice in this passage, they mentioned the priority of continuing to preach the word. Verse 2 says this, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They emphasize this again in verse 4. The apostles say this, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So in both verse 2 and verse 4, the apostles assert the importance of the continued proclamation of the word. The table issue, the issue with the widows, was an important one, and one that needed to be addressed. But it could not be addressed at the expense of proclaiming the word of God. And in that, I think it's pretty obvious that the apostles, they prioritized the preaching of the word of God. 
even over serving tables. Again, that doesn't mean that they saw the table issue as unimportant. In fact, we'll talk about that in a little bit. They saw it as very important. But what it does mean is this. They felt their primary task was to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, that we are sinners And that Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose three days later and ascended to the right hand of God. And anyone who trusts in him can be rescued from their sin. Now certainly part of the reason why they felt so compelled to devote themselves to this ministry is because Jesus had told them to do this. In Acts 1.8, he told them to be witnesses. The Spirit had also equipped them to do this. In other words, the apostles prioritized the preaching of the word in part because this was their unique role and task in the church. But having said that, I think it's worth asking, well, why would God give the leaders that unique role and task? And I think the answer to that question is that the proclamation of the word of God and the proclamation of the good news of Christ is at the center of the church's mission. And thus it makes sense that the leaders would prioritize the proclamation of the word. Again, taking care of widows, this was important. But the proclamation of the word was the heart of what the church was to be about. And here's why that's relevant for us this morning. It seems to me that it's easy for the church today to get caught up in a lot of good things to the exclusion of its primary task. For example, there are a lot of churches, including some in our community, that are committed to caring for the poor, and that's good. And there are a lot of churches that are committed to helping kids in need. That's good, too. And there are churches that are trying to be a positive force in the community. That also is good. But if those things are being done in a way that's divorced from a proclamation of the good news of Christ, then those churches have lost sight of their primary task. You could even argue they've really lost sight of what it means to be a church. We are to go and make disciples of Jesus. That is the mission that Jesus has given us. He's told us to go and make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey what He's commanded. We are to proclaim the Word of God. That is our mission. If we care for the poor, or serve the disadvantaged, or bless the community, but do so with no intent of actually proclaiming the word of Christ, we're missing the mission. Now hear me clearly, we should care for the poor, and we should help the disadvantaged, and we should be a blessing to the community. And quite honestly, that's something that we could grow in as a church. But we must never make it our goal to do those things apart from a proclamation of the good news of Christ. Churches are not meant to be charity organizations that merely do the same thing as non-Christian charity organizations. No, we are the church and we have a different mission. And our mission is to proclaim Christ to a lost world. As we love others and as we serve others and as we're blessing the community, we do all those things. But as we do that, we are proclaiming Jesus. And furthermore, when we gather together on Sunday mornings, or on Wednesdays, and whenever we gather together, the Word is to be at the center of what we do too. In other words, we don't just externally proclaim the Word to lost people, but we also internally proclaim the Word to one another. Because hear this, the Word of Christ not only rescues us from our sin, but it also transforms us as believers on a daily basis. Hence, when we gather together, we must open the Word. We must proclaim the good news of Christ. Listen, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. The day I stop preaching the Word of God and I start preaching my own opinion, or the day I start watering down what the Word teaches to try to make it more palatable or to try to be more relevant is the the day you need to drag me down from the pulpit and throw me in the parking lot. Or worse, do whatever you need to do to me because I should not be in the pulpit if that's the case. For that matter, the day this church stops preaching or teaching the Word of God and stops proclaiming the good news of Christ is the day this church stops being a church, at least the biblical one. Proclamation of the word of Christ is at the center of the church's mission. 
And hear this, if you are a follower of Christ, it should be at the center of your personal mission also. Whether you're in the workplace or in your neighborhood or at your home, proclamation of the good news of Christ should be your goal. But sadly, we often neglect that goal. Years ago, I remember standing in the church hallway of our church in Texas. I was a youth pastor at the time, and I was talking to the parents of one of our youth. And these parents had a teenage son who was in the youth group, and the son was obviously not walking with Christ, even by his own admission. But as the parents were talking with me, it seemed that the parents were unaware of that reality or just chose to ignore it. They kept talking about how good their kid was and how he's doing all these things in school and all the things that he was accomplishing. And on some level, there's no problem with that. Even if you have a non-believing child, you can still be proud of them. But what troubled me about the conversation, the reason why I remember it so vividly all these years later, is it seemed as if their son's spiritual state was of zero concern to them. It's almost as if their goal in parenting, and this is the sense I got from the conversation, was just to have him be a good kid. But for Christians, hear this, that is not the goal. Our goal is not to produce good kids. Our goal is to help our kids see the beauty of Christ. It's to help them see that Christ is worth pursuing and that he can rescue them from their sin. Now, we can't save our kids. Hear me. We cannot save them. But we can point them to the good news of Christ and pray that the Spirit does a work. And so if you're a parent, let me encourage you to make that your goal. Make your priority the same as that of the church. Proclaim the good news of Christ. The other stuff, academics, sports, music, social, that's still important. But it's not as important as the good news of Jesus. So in your homes, in your parenting, in your marriages, for that matter, at the place of your work, in your neighborhood, at your school, do not neglect the priority of the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. We are sinners. He is a great Savior. And the Word of God constantly points us to that truth. And we must do everything we can to help people in our lives see that truth, that in Christ we can be rescued from our sin and we can have eternal life and peace with God. Do not neglect the preaching of the word or the proclamation of the good news of Christ. That seemed to be the key cog in the ministry of the early church, and it should be the key cog in our strategy too. That's not the only thing we see that the church does in Acts 6 in terms of ministry strategy. They prioritize the proclamation of the word, but secondly, they recognize the need to care for one another. This is the second prong of the three prongs. They recognize the need to care for one another. Now again, just because the apostles prioritized the task of proclaiming the word does not mean they ignored the importance of taking care of these widows. In fact, look with me again at verses 2 and 3. Verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. I think it would have been easy for the apostles to approach this issue with the widows and just look for any volunteer to take care of the issue and get rid of it as quickly as possible. Just say, who can take care of this? That would have been the most expedient route, and it would have solved the problem the quickest, at least in the short run. But in the apostles' recommendation of verse 3, it's clear. The apostles were not looking for the quickest solution. They weren't just trying to make the problem go away. They saw it as an issue of great need. Consider again the qualifications of verse 3. The church is to look for men of good reputation who are full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. In other words, the apostles don't dismiss the concerns of the Hellenists by just saying, well, let's just find someone to serve these widows. Rather, they recognize this is an important issue. The way in which we care for one another and love one another is an issue of great importance. And so we need to find the best of the best in order to meet this task. Men of good reputation, filled with the Spirit, filled with wisdom. 
Now, as a side note here, some of us suggested that this is perhaps the first time the office of deacon appears in the New Testament. It's true that the root word for deacon does appear in verse 2 in the Greek, but there's no mention of the office of deacon here in Acts 6, so I don't think that's what's happening. However, the principle of appointing someone to do a task to free up the teachers to keep teaching is probably the principle that does eventually lead to the office of deacon. Nevertheless, the point of the Acts 6 narrative here is not to give us the origin story for the office of deacon. Rather, the point of Acts 6 is to help us see how the church addressed a problem in their early existence. And what we see in Acts 6 is the church took this problem of caring for the widows very seriously. The recommendation was not just, let's throw some warm bodies at the problem. The recommendation was, let's find the best of the best, men filled with the spirit of good reputation who have wisdom. And in approaching the issue in that way, I think the the apostles remind us of the extreme importance of caring for one another. Preaching the word may have been at the forefront of the apostles' mission, but the apostles recognized that loving one another in the body of Christ and caring for one another was part of the mission too. And in fact, the two go hand in hand. We make Christ known by proclaiming the word of Christ, but we also make Christ known by the way in which we love and care for one another. In John 13, Jesus said it this way, By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. Preaching the word and loving one another are part and parcel of the same mission. Obviously, it's problematic if a church neglects to preach the word of God. But it's equally problematic if a church fails to love one another. To preach without love is to use the words of 1 Corinthians 13, to be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So hear this, the church should absolutely prioritize the preaching of the word, but the church should also be equally committed to loving one another. I think we see that in this Acts 6 narrative. The early church and the apostles prioritized. We must proclaim Christ, but they also took the command to love one another very seriously. Now I think it's worth noting here that the type of love that we're talking about is a love that crosses cultural and ethnic boundaries. It's not insignificant here that the issue in Acts 6 is an issue that stems back to cultural or ethnic differences. For whatever reason, there's a disconnect between the Hebrews and the Hellenists. For the early apostles, this was an issue that needed to be addressed because all members of the church, regardless of their background, were significant and need to be cared for. And given all that's gone on in our country the last couple of years, and even in the last couple of weeks, that's probably worth reflecting on. I know there's a lot of talk in the United States about the importance of racial reconciliation and how that might be achieved. Listen, that's a worthy goal, but obviously the conversation has been a contentious one because not everyone agrees on the best way to achieve that reconciliation. And because of the contentious nature of the conversation, I think some are just growing weary of the topic and just want to avoid it altogether. But hear this. While Christians are right to reject worldly and unbiblical approaches to conversations about race, that doesn't mean that the gospel doesn't have something to say. Because the fact of the matter is that the gospel of Jesus Christ unites brothers and sisters across racial and cultural and socioeconomic and ethnic and age and education boundaries. In fact, one of the most beautiful things about the church is that we come together and we love one another despite our differences. Because we are united by one thing, a love for Jesus. Nico Peterson, who's not here today, may have a different skin color than I do, but we are brothers in Christ. The fact that he was born in Costa Rica and I was born in the United States makes no difference. I love that guy like I love my family because he is my family. 
We were adopted together into the family of God. And hear this, at the table of Christ, there is room for Costa Ricans and Americans. There is room for Hellenists and Hebrews, for black people and white people, rich, poor, educated, uneducated. If your version of Christianity does not cross racial and socioeconomic and age and cultural boundaries, your version is too weak and it is unbiblical. We don't just love those in the body of Christ who look like us and come from the same place that we do. We love all of the body of Christ regardless of background or skin color or education or bank account. Now to be clear, I'm not talking about a love that ignores truth here. I'm talking about a love that's based on truth. I'm talking about a love for others in the body of Christ that's based on a common belief that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, obviously, we're still called to love non-believers as fellow image bearers. But in the body of Christ, there's something different about the way we care for one another and love one another. We care for one another because we are part of the same family together. We've been adopted into the family. And eventually, as we know in Revelation, there will be people from every tongue and tribe and nation and language gathered around the throne. And so despite our differences, we make it our goal to serve and love one another. So hear this. If you come on Sundays only to hear a few songs and hear some preaching and maybe pray a little bit, but you have no desire to care for the other people in this room, you have no desire to serve them or to love them, then you're missing a key component of what it means to be a follower of Christ. We actively care for one another because God first loved us. And as fellow members of his family, we look out for each other. And in doing so, we demonstrate the love of Christ to one another. In fact, in my life, I'll say this. God has often most demonstrated his love for me through his people. Whether it be the church stepping up in amazing ways to help with our adoption of our daughter, or the body of Christ praying and fasting with us when our son was in the hospital, or simply individuals in the church reaching out and encouraging us when we are at our lowest points, God has often used the church to most help us feel his love. And I know many of you could tell similar stories. In fact, I've even heard some of those stories this week. Listen, we don't just gather on Sunday mornings to gain theological knowledge and learn more about books from the Bible and sing a few songs. We gather on Sunday mornings because we love Jesus and because we love one another. By the way, that, that's why this idea that you can just watch church on a screen, which I know has become more popular since COVID started, that I'll just stay at home and watch on my screen, that's not the way the church is designed to work. Because we're not just gaining information. We're not just trying to learn things about the Bible. We're also trying to then put that into action by loving each other. And it's hard to love someone in their lowest moment when they're on a screen. When they're hurting and they need prayed for and they need hugged, they need someone there with them. And so we gather on Sunday mornings not just to collect information, but because we love each other. And when we come together and we love each other, because of Christ, there's something profound that happens. We're demonstrating the power of the Spirit. That our love crosses these boundaries. That yes, we may come from different places. We may look differently. We may have different educational backgrounds. But the love of Christ unites us. That is profoundly beautiful. And when we continue to do that throughout the rest of the week, it shows the world we are his disciples. So church, let me ask you this. What's one practical thing you could do this week to demonstrate your love for someone else in this church body? For the church in Acts 6, the apostles didn't respond to the concern of the Hellenists by simply reiterating their love verbally. They responded by putting their love into action. In the same way, I would say this. When I talk about loving for one another, I'm not saying, well, let's just all hold hands and sing kumbaya. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is putting our love into action. 
actually taking a step to show someone we care. So again, what practical step could you take this week to demonstrate your care for someone else in the church body? Maybe it's someone that you're a close friend with. Maybe it's someone that you don't know at all. Maybe it's someone that's been marginalized and pushed to the side. But how can you love someone in the church body? The early church prioritized the preaching of the word, but they also recognized the need to care for and love one another. It was a key part of their ministry strategy. It should be part of ours too. But lastly, I want you to notice the third prong of their ministry strategy, and that is they prayed. So they prioritized the preaching of the word. They loved one another, but notice the third prong, they prayed. We actually see the early church's devotion to prayer in multiple ways in this passage. Now in verse 2, which I've already mentioned, the apostles say that they must be committed to preaching the word. But notice, when they say that same thing in verse 4, they add prayer to the list. Verse 4 says this, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the apostles weren't just devoted to proclaiming the word, they were also devoted to prayer. We see that reflex to pray again in verse 6. Verse 6, these, this is the seven they've just appointed, they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now one of the things that is noteworthy in the opening chapters of the book of Acts is the early church's commitment to pray. Obviously they were committed to preaching the word, we've seen that throughout the book of Acts. Obviously they're committed to loving one another, we've seen that too throughout the book of Acts, selling their possessions giving to those in need, here taking care of the widows. But undergirding all of it in the book of Acts is a commitment to pray. If you go back and look at all the great revivals in church history since, you would notice the same undergirding theme. In 1904 and 1905, a great revival broke out in the country of Wales. It's estimated that in the first two months of the revival, 70,000 came to faith in Christ. And within a six-month period, over 100,000 had come to know Christ in Wales. And the effect of those conversions on the country was dramatic. During that time period, police in certain parts of Wales reported a 60% decrease in drunkenness. Parts of the country ran out of Bibles. They were selling out so quickly. I think this is interesting. Profanity was so diminished in the coal mines that the ponies dragging the coal carts in the tunnels had to be retrained as they were so accustomed to being given commands that used profanity. But when these men came to know Christ, the ponies had to be taught, oh, this is what that command actually means. It's even reported that children were holding their own revival meetings in homes and barns during this time period. It was an amazing revival. And it can probably be attributed to a lot of different things, but mostly it can be traced back to one thing, at least from a human perspective. Obviously, the Spirit is what it's traced back to ultimately. But from a human perspective, it can be traced back to one thing, prayer. One key pastor in the revival was known to have prayed daily for a period of 13 years for revival in Wales. He would sometimes wake up at 1 in the morning and then pray until daylight for revival. In the year and a half leading up to the revival, there were numerous prayer groups that spotted up or, or, or bursted out throughout the country. Groups that would pop up in small villages or small towns or big cities where people would gather to pray earnestly and agonizingly that the country would see revival. And that earnest and agonizing prayer seems to have been the catalyst behind the revival. As author Sam Storms put it, one thing is clear. The revival is not the product of someone's personality or another person's preaching or of anyone's planning, but of God's gracious response to the prayers of his people. The Welsh revival of 1904 and 5 can be traced back to a commitment to prayer. And so it is with nearly every revival in history. Revival historian J. Edwin Orr once said it this way, No great spiritual awakening has, be, has begun anywhere in the world apart from united prayer, Christians persistently praying for revival. 
Now, as evidenced by our passage today, the church in the book of Acts was committed to prayer. So is it any wonder then that the passage ends with the word of God increasing and growing and the number of disciples being multiplied greatly, even priests who would have been opposed to the gospel message coming to faith in Jesus too? Because they prayed. Now, ultimately, because it's the Spirit worked, but the Spirit responded to their prayers. So listen, I know many of you are concerned about the direction our country's headed in. I know all of us who are Christians would like to see more conversions to Christ in our community and with our friends and family. But I wonder, how often do we commit ourselves to earnestly pray for those things? It's one thing to pray on occasion as need arises. It's another to say, I am devoted to prayer. This is a way of living for me. And as you read the book of Acts, it's clear that for the early church, it was the latter. The prayer was a devotion. It was a way of living. It was the heartbeat of the church. And so the question for us is, will we follow their pattern? Are we so confident in God's goodness and his sovereignty that we can't help but pray? If not, perhaps we need to repent and ask God to see his goodness and sovereignty anew. Perhaps we need to meditate more on the cross and the resurrection. Because on the cross, we see his goodness. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. At the resurrection, we see his power and his sovereignty triumphing over death. And as we look to those things, surely this should encourage us to pray. Listen, church, I know there are all kinds of things we could try to do today and attract the crowds. We could have fog and light machines. Suppose we could build something where I would come up from the stage. And then I would preach on 18 ways to improve your marriage. We could give out gift cards to Best Buy and Raising Cane's. We could even set up a chocolate syrup slip insider right here in the sanctuary. But the best strategy for having a ministry that actually lasts into eternity, that is kind of the goal, isn't it? The best strategy, I think, is the one we see here in Acts 6. Preach the word, love each other, and then pray like crazy. That may not be a flashy strategy, but I'm convinced it's the best one. So let's stick to it. Let's preach the word. Let's love each other. And then let's pray that the Spirit does a great work. In fact, let's pray now. Father, we thank you for the reminder here in Acts 6 of the way forward, of the way to do ministry. We preach the word. We love each other. We pray. Lord, when we preach, what we're preaching is the good news of Jesus. And so as we talk about this commitment to preaching the word and this commitment to, to pointing people to Christ, it's appropriate that we now come and turn our attention to the Lord's table because it's at the Lord's table that we are reminded of the good news about Jesus. So Lord, help us now as we transition in this time of taking the Lord's Supper to be reminded of the hope we have in Jesus. And may this spur us on to love one another, to pray, and to proclaim your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.